The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Oranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, April 8th. I'm Terry Arango, welcoming Congressman Bill Posey, who will be introduced by guest host Dr. Brian Hooker. After Congressman Posey and Dr. Hooker talk, I'll be back to join Dr. Hooker. Brian? Okay. Well, uh, it is, it, it's uh, really an honor to uh, be guest host, especially with Representative Posey. Uh, Representative Posey uh, has an illustrious political political career. He's serving his third term as uh, U.S. Congressman representing Florida's Space Coast and Treasure Coast. He previously served in the Florida State Legislature as Senator for eight years and as State Representative also for eight years. And he's worked at the Kennedy Space Center uh, during the Apollo program and then started the successful real estate business, uh, uh, Posey and Company Realtors. Um, he's a no-nonsense person, and, and I, I can confirm this directly, and he has been leading a leading voice for government accountability, both in the state of Florida, where he uh, passed model legislation for holding government agencies accountable uh, for how they spend tax dollars, and he's also been a leading advocate for transparency in government and holding federal government officials accountable for their actions. Uh, Representative Posey currently serves on the Financial Services Committee and on the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. And Representative Posey has been a super friend to the autism community. Uh, he made a special effort to participate in the Congressional Oversight and Government Reform Autism Hearing in November 2012, and he, he made an appearance, uh, you know, specifically because he is interested in this issue, and he's not even uh, a part of the committee. He was elected as an ad hoc, hoc member of the committee for that particular hearing, and subsequently then he was a guest at the 2013 Autism One Conference in May of 2013 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he has introduced bipartisan legislation along with Representative Carolyn Maloney from New York, and he, uh, regarding autism, and he has been instrumental uh, along with a former congressman, Dan Burton, in the, re the release of many background documents from the CDC regarding the link between vaccines and autism. Representative Posey has been labeled Mr. Accountability by a leading national journalist. He's been about accountability since his first days in the Florida State Legislature, and he continues in that, in, that in the U.S. Congress. 
He is from the Sunshine State, and he's working to shine some of that sunshine on the dark corners of the federal government. And he believes that the CDC should not be exempt and is working to hold the CDC accountable in the area of vaccine safety. He, uh, he said that our children are the most vulnerable and the most precious resource in our nation, and their safety should be paramount. So welcome, Representative Posey. We are so glad to have you. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be with you. Well, um, we, you know, obviously we're, we're talking about autism, and um, uh, there are many, many uh, children with autism in the United States. The CDC just recently came out with their numbers saying that uh, one in 68 children has uh, um, autism uh, directly, not just autism spectrum disorder, but, but uh, autism. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, with this statistic, um, uh, this, is, this is extremely alarming, but uh, just to back up, how did you become familiar with the autism issue, and what are your, some of your concerns regarding the current autism epidemic, as well as issues that families with, autism, or with autistic children face? Well, uh, my interest in the issue goes back even to my days in, in the Florida legislature. Um, I got to know uh, Dr. Gary Campotheros, and, and uh, some of my other friends and acquaintances have been affected uh, by autism. And, and quite frankly, I was always perplexed uh, about having mercury in vaccinations. I mean, just from a common sense uh, perspective, I thought that, that's, that's kind of crazy. I mean, you know, we had to had to ban mercuricone and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, just by providence, uh, one of the biggest advocates in Congress uh, on the issue happened to be my predecessor, Dr. David Weldon, and, and I didn't even know that. And so when I came to Congress, I, I kept his staff. I've been familiar with his staff, knew they did a good job. And, and uh, man, we were on the same page, same chapter, same verse on this issue. So it was just kind of natural to move forward with it. Uh, you know, the one in 68 statistic you mentioned, uh, that shows the magnitude of the problem. It's worse, as you know, for young boys. It's unsustainable. Um, you know, I'm not sure the folks at the CI, CDC or NIH or HHS understand that. I mean, it's a personal price for children and the families that are affected. It's a financial price for the families and society as a whole. Um, that's just starters. <laughs> That is, and 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 you've you've uh, captured the the issue just just so perfectly, and um, we do you know when uh, uh, when uh, uh, Representative Weldon retired, you you basically have have picked up that torch from him, and and we do appreciate it so much. Now uh, the the uh, November 2012 uh, Government Reform Committee hearing, uh, it was called the Federal Response to the autism epidemic. Um, what was your impression? I mean, you had some, you, you know, not only did you listen to the different testimonies and you and, and listened to the entire and were there for the entire hearing, but you also had some very direct questions for Dr. Colleen Boyle, who's the head of the uh, National Center for Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities at the CDC. Well, I, you know, I don't like it when anybody's evasive, and, and I'm sure you don't, nor most of your listeners. I mean, you know, just be straightforward and honest. You know, don't, don't be evasive. Uh, Dr. Boyle was intentionally evasive. I asked her a very direct question. You know, have you done a study comparing autism rates in vaccinated versus unvaccinated children? She started telling us about everything that she'd done in order to avoid answering that question. I mean, it's like I asked her what time it was, and 
she tried to take up all my time describing how a clock works, you know. And uh, after she wasted three minutes, I cut her off, and I demanded that she answer the question. And then, only then, uh, did she admit that the federal government has never done that very simple, fundamental, basic study. Uh, you can do that retroactively, as you know, and most of the people listening know. Every vaccine study the CDC does is retroactive, and they parade them around as being valid. So uh, it's shocking to know that for some reason, suddenly, uh, they say if they do a retroactive study that it's looking at past data that already exists. Uh, they say that study would not be valid. And, and that's just outrageous, uh, to say the very least. I guess, you know, I, I saw, I, I was sitting there in the front row, and um, I, I did, I, I, I was cheering you on, you know, I tried not to be audible, but uh, in my mind I was doing the wave uh, for you because uh, we, we so much appreciated, and it was so evident in that hearing that Dr. Boyle was being evasive, and, and I love your analogy about the clock. Now, um, later on, um, Dr. Boyle, it took her about four months, but um, you, you gave her some written questions that you wanted her to answer. And uh, in, I think, in April 2013, then uh, uh, Dr. Boyle and the CDC came up with these uh, these uh, written answers. Is it okay if we talk about those? Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, I know we have a, a, an autism epidemic. You know it. She knows it. She knows we know it. Uh, but for some reason, they refuse to acknowledge it, you know, publicly. And, and as soon as the public health officials acknowledge that we uh, have an epidemic, then maybe we can see them bring the full force of research to the table. Uh, right now, for whatever reason, uh, intentionally or un- unintentionally, uh, they're in denial, if it's my opinion. I, I couldn't agree more, absolutely. And, and in Dr. Boyle's written testimony, she, she called autism an important public health concern, uh, but she refused to call the situation an epidemic. And when she came out specifically and uh, uh, this last week and, and um, referred to the autism statistics as 1 in 68, and, and you said correctly that it, it affects more boys. It's about 1 in 42 boys based on the CDC's numbers. Uh, she, again, refused to call this an epidemic, which, uh, you know, it's, it's just un, unimaginable. Um, the, even the American Academy of Pediatrics has called this an epidemic, and, it, you know, we've got this, this huge, nationwide problem uh, that, um, you, you know, that, that the CDC refuses to address. Yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> she, she says, you know, her, her answer to everything was that, well, if we just diagnose better, we spot it better. In other words, if it wasn't for the bureaucrats having some special diagnosis, uh, 90% of the people with autism wouldn't know it, neither would their parents. I just contend that that's not true. We just don't see these 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 children, and I and I don't see that that in you know the 1960s and 1970s, where you know supposedly if we had better diagnosis, then we had one in 68 then as well. I don't see that doctors uh, had any trouble diagnosing a child that had severe language delays or came in and they were flapping their arms because they were trying to stimulate their vestibular system. I just I I, I can't imagine that. And uh, uh, neither can I. I don't, I don't think anybody. Uh, that's intellectually honest with this uh, issue can even begin to fathom 
uh, that lame excuse that she uses. Yeah, I, it it just it is it, it makes it makes no sense. There have been several peer-reviewed studies that have shown that the autism epidemic is real. That in, in terms of more diagnosis or greater level of of uh, awareness, that that may account for about ten percent of the increase in autism cases. But then we have ninety percent of the cases that um, the CDC just basically buries their head and says, we're just going to ignore you. Yeah, it adds insult to injury. Yes, yes. Now, um, you referred to uh, Dr. Paul Thorson, and um, Dr. Paul Thorson is a, is or um, was up until 2010 a CDC affiliate from Denmark, and uh, he was indicted in Atlanta federal court uh, on April 13, 2011, on 13 counts of wire fraud and on nine counts of money laundering. Okay, and in and during your questioning, you. Uh, uh, re- referred to um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Thorson as a scumbag, and uh, that's because I couldn't use the description of an unmentionable body part in public. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, but now, um, interestingly, Colin Boyle indicated that Thorson had only participated in one CDC-funded paper. In truth, he's collaborated, and he collaborated up until 2013 on 36 papers. Now, what does that say about Dr. Boyle's testimony? Well, I called it what it was at that time. Um, I think she misled the committee um, to the Congress about this crook, Thorson, and his involvement. Uh, if you read through the emails, uh, you know, learn about the meetings and the financial arrangements this crook had with the CDC, it will make you absolutely sick to your stomach. Uh, this is no casual researcher way down the line. This was the CDC's key man in Denmark. He was closely tied to the CDC's top vaccine safety researchers. You know, as I see it, the CDC's view seems to have been uh, as long as Thorson was cooking the books to produce the results they wanted. They didn't care whether the studies were valid or how much money was being siphoned off the top. They just obviously did not bother to look. It's like the Securities and Exchange Commission and Bernie Madoff. Uh, but it's worse because we're talking about someone who basically stole money that was supposed to be used to improve the health and safety of our most vulnerable in our society, you know, our young babies. Right, right, and and I, I I like your analogy with Bernie Madoff. It it just it just seems like the CDC really could have cared less. I mean, they got the result out of out of uh, Dr. Thorson that they wanted. They were able to say that uh, the uh, thimerosal-containing vaccines did not have an effect in Denmark, neither did the MMR vaccine, and so therefore he was given carte blanche. Now, Boyle, in her, in her written response, she said later that the CDC actually refused to investigate the science behind the studies in which Thorson co-authored. In, in other words, they weren't going to look at they, they still said that these were valid studies, despite the fact that Thorson, who had been indicted in Atlanta court, despite the fact that he had co-authored these studies. Do you feel that that's appropriate? Of course not. Again, I hate to just use, you know, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and Bernie Madoff as an example, but, I mean, I see these, you know, glaring parallels. You know, that guy Markopoulos went to the Securities and Exchange Commission 10 years uh, before Madoff bilked uh, people out of $70 billion, and he gave, it, gave him a file that any prosecutor could pick up and run with. 
And for 10 years, the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and over 50 complicit employees uh, ignored Bernard Madoff. And the CDC uh, did the same with Thorson. And, and, it's, and it's interesting. I, I just recently found out that um, one of CDC's top scientists regarding autism uh, recently, her name's Diane, Dr. Diana Shandell, she uh, recently quit the CDC and strangely immigrated to uh, Denmark, and she is now working directly with Thorsten. Thorsten's a known fugitive. He's, he's a fugitive. If you look at the, uh, the uh, DHHS Office of the Inspector General, the top 10 fugitives in the United States, Thorsten is on that list. And now we have a CDC employee who has quit the CDC and is now working and doing autism research with this fugitive. She emigrated to Denmark. I mean, and, and it just seems like the CDC just ignores this issue entirely. Uh, you know, you can't say it any more simply than that. Right, right. Now, um, you mentioned earlier that uh, um, Boyle is said that uh, the CDC had never looked at the health outcomes of vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, it's, it's ludicrous. The, the CDC, um, in their written response uh, to your question, said, oh, there, it would be unethical to do a certain study because you would have to pick individuals who uh, were, were blinded and then would be refused vaccination. Now, this is what they described as what's called a prospective study. And th- it's odd because the CDC never does prospective studies like this. They only do what are called retrospective or look-back studies. Now, could you describe how this played out and, and um, you know, what you are doing actually to address this? Well, first of all, you know, that, that was just some red meat they threw out there for the againers, the people who do all the blogging and shredding anybody who dares question the, the unaccountable bureaucrats. You know, like it was suggested all over the blog sphere that an evil Bill Posey literally wanted the government to withhold vaccinations from children so they could study them. And now you know that's a bold-faced lie, and I know it's a bold-faced lie, but that's how, through their little media network, they twist the truth, you know, to, to disparage, to malign, to vilify, to denigrate anybody who wants any kind of accountability in this crazy house. Uh, how did it affect me? It just encourages me more. It makes me even more determined. Uh, I've been introduce a bipartisan bill. It's House Resolution 1757. We call it, quite simply, what it is, the Vaccine Safety Study Act. And that would require a vaccinated versus non-vaccinated study. It's just uh, Congresswoman Maloney and me right now. Uh, We need more co-sponsors. And and I hope everyone listening to this program today uh, needs to call their member of Congress and ask them to add their name uh, as a co-sponsor to the bill. And, and I understand in, 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 the, in the autism community, there, there's a little bit of a fracture. There's some people that think, you know, uh, Mercury bears a large part of the responsibility for what we have here. And there's others who think that it bears no part of the responsibility. And, and I'm kind of in the middle of that, you know, quite frankly. I mean, I think it has responsibility, but I think the spectrum is so large that other things can play into it, too. And I'd like to, to know, you know, just how much uh, the vaccinations do play into it, and I think everyone would like to know that. And, and when we know that, then that part is off the table, and we can focus on other remedies, you know. Uh, but they just don't want to do it, and I'm hoping that we can compel them to do it uh, with this legislation. And, and, again, I urge anyone that has any interest in this thing, no matter what side of that coin that you're on right now, uh, if you would get proactive and, and we could force this issue 
uh, to have this day, then that is off the table. Then everything else we will be moving forward to completely united. Correct. I couldn't have said it better. And and you and I have have talked directly about this particular bill. And and one of the things that you've assured is that, that there would be accountability. There would be accountability and direct oversight of the government if you know if the Department of Health and Human Services does this study, that it would be done in such a way that. It would be a you know we wouldn't have the we wouldn't have the dubious uh, CDC tobacco science statistics. Yeah. So I, I I do appreciate that. Now, um, how do you feel about you know this this thing this 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 raises the whole issue of the overall state of vaccine safety in this uh, safety in 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 the United States. And, and the CDC, you know, is, as far as I can see, they can't really be trusted regarding investigating vaccine safety and vaccine adverse events. And it seems that there's a huge conflict of interest. The CDC buys $4 billion worth of vaccines from the vaccine manufacturers, and then they distribute it to the rest of the country. How can we trust them? And, you know, can we trust them to look at any type of vaccine safety issue? Well... Um, you know, I, I think the CDC should be investigated. Uh, you know, should the vaccine safety office even be at the CDC? Uh, I'm inclined to think no. You know, today they're the arresting police officer, the judge, and the jury. We know how that's going to come out every time, don't we? The arresting, right. officer, the arresting officer is going to be right 100% of the time when he controls the judge and the jury. Uh, the, incestuous, the incestuous relationship... Uh, between the public health community, uh, the vaccine makers, and government officials uh, should not be allowed to continue. I mean, uh, you know, too many top CDC personnel uh, go to work for the vaccine makers when they leave. That's a revolving door that creates a serious conflict of interest and, and perverse incentives that compromise integrity. If you read Jack Abernoff, one of the most infamous uh, lobbyists who recently got out of prison and wrote a book, on how he bought all the congressional offices, is he went around and said, hey, to every, every staffer that he thought was important to him, hey, look, when you get tired of working for a congressman X, Y, or Z, you give me a call, I'll, I'll triple your salary. And he said he never even had to worry about contacting the offices to see what's going on anymore, that all those prospective staffers who you know, expected to work for him at triple their salary someday would call him. And, and that's kind of the scenario you see with the incestuous uh, relationship that appears that we have with the CDC and uh, so much of the RX industry. Uh, you know, I filed legislation to to close the revolving door also in Congress, you know, that's saying, okay, if, if you want to go become a lobbyist, then then, then you give up uh, all your federal benefits. You give up your uh, federal retirement, you give up your federal insurance and all that. When you want to get on the other side of the board, uh, then you do that. And and, and maybe we should have a policy of the same thing. If you want to leave the CDC or, or, any, or any regulatory agency in the federal government, if you leave and you want to go to work for the people you regulate, then you give up all the federal benefits that you've accrued to that point. Wow, incredible. You, um, you, you, are, you are an American hero. And, um, you know, I think of of uh, the former CDC director, Dr. Julie Gerberding, you know, who in 2009 became the uh, uh, director of the vaccine division of Merck. 
Okay, she went directly into that that position. I think she was out of the CDC for the, like an obligatory twelve months, and and we see that resolving revolving door with uh, Thomas Verstraten, uh, Frank DiStefano, and others. Uh, Robert Davis, who in in the who have been in the CDC, and then they um, uh, get lucrative jobs with vaccine manufacturers, and it's just you know, how can they regulate? It, it just makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, and 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 in fairness, you know that they they're valuable to the industry because you know of the information that that they have acquired while they were working there. I mean that doesn't mean the industry you know prima facie evidence that the industry is corrupt by hiring in them. But they, they got all that while they were supposedly regulating the industry and serving the taxpayers. And the role reverses, you know, once they cross that threshold. Right, right. And, the, and, and, it's, and it's that role reversal. If, if somebody is in a regulatory position and they realize that, you know, at the end of the rainbow, there's this pot of gold in terms of a, a lucrative pharmaceutical position, then they, they're truly conflicted. They have an, 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 uh, a built-in conflict of interest because they're, they're, they're basically looking at, at this particular point in time, uh, perhaps courting their future employers. Yeah, and, and that's one of the big problems we have in this country now. You know, most congressional staff, you know, look at that as, as the as the ultimate the ultimate payday. Wow. Congressman I've been listening in the wing. And I feel compelled to say that you've spoken here today very courageously, forthrightly, and eloquently, and I just really want to thank you. Well, I, I appreciate what y'all do, that there's advocates out there that, you know, everybody uh, doesn't view the solution to this dilemma, to this epidemic, is to crawl underneath the table, put your thumb in your mouth, get in a fetal position, and, 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 and hope that somebody else does it, you know, that, that will take up the reins and, and run with the ball. And, and y'all are, are running with the ball, and my hat's off to you, and you can count on me to help any way I can. Thank you so much, Congressman Posey. You're welcome. And to our listeners, Dr. Hooker and I will be right back after this brief break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Every child with autism deserves a voice, but for many, using words and language to express themselves is one of the most difficult parts of their day. Fast Forward is an online program that was developed by leading neuroscientists to help these children find their voice. Fast Forward targets the foundational language and processing skills your child needs to become a successful communicator and proficient reader. Get started with Fast Forward at home today. Visit BrainProLearning.com or call 855-308-1362 to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus Drug Discount Card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. This is Terry Aranga here with Dr. Brian Hooker. Again, uh, Brian Hooker is an associate professor of biology at Simpson University, specializing in chemistry and biology. Dr. Hooker is also a senior process consultant, working closely on process design for the environment restoration industry, and his design efforts focus on industrial biotechnology and chemical engineering principles. Dr. Hooker received his doctorate in biochemical engineering, and Dr. Hooker, uh, I welcome you back to this segment of this special Autism Awareness Month program here on Voice America, and thank you for a great interview with Congressman Bill Posey. Thank you. It was it was my pleasure. It's um it's it's a privilege to be on your show, and and I think that it's 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 imperative that shows like yours get as much coverage as possible, especially when we look at you know the current rates of autism at one at sixty eight. That's just that's just astronomical. Yes, it's an astounding number of children affected. Well, Dr. Hooker, you spent a significant amount of time uncovering malfeasance in the CDC, specifically regarding vaccines and autism. Have you looked at the science behind this relationship? Why do you believe that the CDC studies do not pass muster? Well, I've done, you know, I've I focused so many years on just uncovering, you know, malfeasance, going through things like old reports and email traffics and drafts of studies and, and things like that. But um, just, just recently, within the past year or so, I've been able to start to look at and reanalyze some of the CDC studies on vaccines and autism, uh, among other neurodevelopmental disorders, and and I'm seeing, uh, you know, it's this is, it's it's been uh, wonderful in a way because I, you know, I, rather rather than than looking at just pure malfeasance, I'm actually able to look at the science and start with the same raw data. Uh, that the CDC uh, started with. I, I've actually requested and in some cases received some of the uh, original data sets. Of course, all the patient names are taken out and all the identifiers are taken out. So it's just, you know, essentially data sets showing uh, things like uh, um, exposure to uh, thimerosal, both uh, prenatal and postnatal, um, different uh, neurological diagnoses, uh, timing of different vaccines, whether vaccines were taken on time and so forth. And then I've been able to go back and redesign the studies the way that I, I feel uh, are, you know, in a method that is most appropriate um, in, in order to actually see relationships, not cover up relationships, but actually see do relationships exist between uh, different vaccines in the vaccine schedule and autism spectrum disorders. All right, so you've mentioned Samarasol, you've mentioned prenatal, 
uh, and infant vaccines. Did you see a connection there? What are the critical relationships that appear in your results? Well, one of the things that really troubled me, um, I was able to get uh, some of the earliest versions of the CDC's price study. And just to give you some background, the CDC published the price study in pediatrics in 2010. It was published after it was uh, rejected by uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association and, as well as the New England Journal of Medicine. It was finally published in pediatrics. And I had some, some grave concerns about that paper because when you look at the background information and the background data, you actually see that they saw uh, that when uh, women received thimerosal uh, maternally when they were pregnant, uh, that would be um, by via uh, the flu shot or via uh, uh, Rho IgG antibodies uh, for Rh factor disease, um, which at that time contained thimerosal. The uh, women that received tamarisol, uh I, by either of those uh, um, injections were about eight times more likely to have a child regress in autism spectrum disorder, and that result never saw the light of day. So I was anxious to go back and look at the information, and not only do relationships exist between prenatal thimerosal exposure and autism, but I saw very interestingly that uh, thimerosal exposure, especially in the first month of life, um, and we have millions of children who got who, who have received the birth Hep B shot or received the hepatitis B shot within the first month of life. Uh, my own son got his hepatitis B shot, his first one, which contained twelve and a half micrograms of mercury, had had two weeks of life. And there's a significant population that got this vaccine and got it very, very early and also got a bolus of thimerosal at the same time. And I see across the board that these individuals were much more likely to receive a diagnosis of autism, autism spectrum disorder, or regressive autism spectrum disorder, um, just, just basically across the board. And the CDC covered up that relationship. They used what I felt were dubious statistical methods, and they, they actually obviated that and said quite the opposite, that Samarasol was somehow protecting children from getting autism. You know, when you're speaking, Dr. Hooker, it actually reminds me of something that I remember from the Simpsonwood transcripts. Um, these were clandestine meetings held in um, in Georgia in the year 2000, I believe, June 2000. Am I on track here? That's correct, June 2000. Does this remind you of anything that was said there? Oh, yes. Um, the, what, what, uh, what Thomas Verstraten said, and he uh, published uh, along with his, uh, his co-investigators the Verstraten study in 2003, but what he said was that the effect was all in the first month of life and that he was seeing a statistically significant, very strong effect. His original uh, study, which was done in 1999, showed that infants that received high levels of thimerosal in their vaccines when they were uh, within the first month of life were 7.6 times more likely to get autism. 
and in some ways that he did the study, the, the, the risk ratio, uh, or what we call relative risk, went up to 11. So that meant that children that received that thimerosal, that received that hepatitis B shot, were 11 more, times more likely than those that didn't receive thimerosal in their first month of life. So this is, you know, this is nothing new. Now the CDC, you know, they, 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 um, this was recently uncovered in some information that I got via congressional request back in August 2013. But now we're seeing that that's consistent. We have another publication. We have another set of data that says that the first month of life is extremely important. And of course, we've had millions of children that were exposed to the Marisol that early. Now, the other thing that I should mention is that Verstraten didn't look at prenatal effects. Okay, so we don't know from his particular information if there was also a prenatal effect, but we do know, Terry, as you pointed out, that in Simpson when he said, look, the effect appears to be all in the first month of life. And that was the Simpson-Wood meeting in Norcross, Georgia in 2000 um, that we were referring to. And I think I remember from, you know, uh, other discussion um, that there are critical and very sensitive, very vulnerable neurodevelopmental windows uh, are very early in life, uh, postnatally and also prenatally. And um, so it just seems... It just does not make sense to, you know, they say that they took the Marisol out of shots, but then, you know, and you can address whether that was even true or not in what amount and for when they said it, when they said they did these things. But then to not recommend, for the CDC to not recommend against pregnant women getting mercury in their flu shots. It's just horrible. It, it makes it, it makes no sense. Um, we we tell uh, uh, women who are pregnant to avoid other uh, exposures to mercury. We tell them not to eat tuna fish. We tell them in some in, in some respects, and some some obstetricians have said, "Hey, just don't eat fish in general because of the mercury exposure." But yet we go ahead and we inject them any tri- in any trimester of pregnancy. We inject them with 25 micrograms of mercury, and there have been studies. There have been rabbit studies that basically show that when you do that with samarasol, it selectively partitions to the placenta and the bulk of it goes to the developing fetus. And it just, you know, how... How can the CDC, you know, it, it's it's unconscionable that the CDC would recommend uh, that women receive Tamarisol containing flu shots. And over 50%, it's probably more like 70% of the flu shots that pregnant women receive in the United States contain Tamarisol. And over 50% of pregnant women, the uptake of the flu shot in pregnant women is about 50% as well. So we have a significant portion of our population that, you know, when they're unborn are being exposed to 25 micrograms of mercury. That is just not a good start. Right. So they say that they've got mercury out of some childhood shots, but then these fetuses, these very tiny children, are being given mercury at a very critical neurodevelopmental, very sensitive time. And that really skews results, I would think, from a layman's perspective, that really skews 
results, and then they can just go and say, oh, look, they were born with it, or oh, look, it must be genetic. What do you think about that? I, I just, I, I, I think that it is, it's, it's, it's dubious at best, but it is, you know, we, we are amidst the biggest iatrogenic disaster in history. I mean, this is, this is a catastrophe beyond belief. I, I, I think, you know, if you, if, if, if you had tried to invent something like this in a fictional, you know, in some type of fictional world, you couldn't really come up with anything worse than this. And, and studies have shown, I mean, there are plenty of studies that show the effects of thimerosal on developing neurological tissues. What happens is that the thimerosal will basically strip what the, the protein, tubulin, that is in, the, in, in what are called the axons. And axons are responsible for what's called long-range connectivity in the brain. I mean, we need long-range connectivity to develop things like speech and language, to be able to read and write. And lo and behold, there is, when, when thimerosal is, is tested on this neurological tissue, the long-range connectivity goes away, the axons are short and stubby, and lo and behold, when you, what you also see in autism is an extremely limited amount of long-range connectivity. These kids, you know, just like the thimerosal-exposed neurons, they have short, stubby axons, and they have, they're over-connected in what's called the short range, but their, their opportunity to develop things like speech and language, to, uh, to be able to develop read and, reading and writing and cognitive skills are basically stolen away from them before they're even born. All right, so this is biologically plausible that thimerosal can do this to brain tissue. It's clinically realistic in that we see the symptoms borne out in real children, so it's biologically plausible. It's been shown, like on the Calgary video, um, so this can be done in, what is that called, in vivo? In, in vitro, in tissue culture, yes. And it's clinically realistic, biologically plausible, um, realistic in vitro. It's been shown clinically realistic. And if I may draw a, a picture for our, read, for our listeners, Brian, is this like you have a wire in your house where you're trying to plug in an appliance or plug in your telephone and you're taking the plastic stuff that covers that wire and just stripping it back? Is that what's happening to cells in the brain in tiny children when they're exposed to thimerosal? I, I think that's a that's a, a very good analogy. You're taking the insulation off the wire. Once you take the insulation off the wire, then you get short, short circuits. Okay, and if that wire touches anything metal, then then you will create a short circuit, and the appliance, which you know may be may be linked to a hundred feet of copper wire. Uh, from from the the uh, power source coming into the house from the you know from the from the power grid, that particular wire then no longer operates. Okay, so you don't have a connection between your waffle iron and and the power grid. Okay, because you've stripped off the insulation, and now that particular wire short circuits. And we know that some children with autism, with the diagnostic label of autism, in fact had uh, myelin basic, antibodies to myelin-basic protein uh, in their objective laboratory analyses, and myelin is the insulation that is surrounding those wires in the brain. Is that true? 
That is true. And so what's happened is is that the myelin basic the myelin basic protein has been has been you know essentially ejected uh, from these neurons, it ends up in areas where you would not expect myelin basic protein, and the body raises up an immune response because it's seeing the wrong thing at the wrong time. So it starts to attack the myelin sheath. That that you know, now we have thimerosal attacking the myelin sheath, and then we have anti-myelin antibodies that are you know in concert attacking the myelin sheath. So. You just don't see long-range connectivity in children that get an autism diagnosis. These people who allowed our children to be continued, to be deluged with Samarasol and set up this autoimmune response allowed our children's brains to eat themselves. Our children's brains eating themselves. Is that, that a good is- analogy? That's correct. That, you know, it's, it's when you when you have a neurological autoimmune response, the brain is attacking itself. Well, Brian, you were you, we've been talking about samarasol, and we've been talking about autism. What other disor- disorders could be related to samarasol exposure? Have you investigated that? Well, I'm I am am really I'm glad to talk about that. The 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 CDC has done a number of different studies where they've looked at quote unquote neurotypical children to see if there are any type of developmental delays or developmental maladies that have have come up due to thimerosal exposure. And and what they did was they, they uh, came up with what's called a regression statistic. They actually looked at, you know, and, and if you did this graphically, if you will, you plot the number of children that have a particular developmental malady against their thimerosal exposure, and they're seeing statistically significant relationships. Now, the CDC, and they, they published their main study, was uh, 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 Thompson et al. In two, that came out in 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the only thing that they said was statistically significant was that if, if uh, males were exposed to uh, higher levels of thimerosal within the first seven months of life, then they were about twice the time, twice as likely to develop motor tics and phonic tics, and and the CDC basically dismissed away the result. And you know, if I, you know, as if this was not a uh, debilitating neurological condition. And I'm sorry, you know, people that have Tourette syndrome, you know, that 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 suffer with tics, with motor tics and phonic tics, children that have tics. I mean, they suffer. This is not something that we want the boys in the United States to to suffer with and be twice as likely just for the sake of getting Samarasol in their infant vaccines, okay? A compound that could be easily removed. And so we've had children now, you know, now we uh, give Samarasol-containing flu shots to children at six months of life. It's actually 12 and a half micrograms of mercury that's given at six months of life. And so we're, we're back in the same boat. The CDC can't back out and say, oh, we removed the Marisol from vaccines. That is a fallacy. It's not true. And so we're putting our children on the front lines and, and basically exposing them to this neurotoxin. Now, that's what the CDC admitted. They admitted 
that boys were more likely to get motor tics and phonic tics. And this was all boys together. They didn't look at any particular subset of the population. They didn't divide it down based on race or anything like that. But when I reanalyzed the information, and, and I've actually confirmed this in background CDC studies, I see a myriad of effects on speech and language specifically in boys, uh, some actually going into to females as well. And I also see that children that were exposed to high levels of thimerosal within the first month of life, and in some cases in the first seven months of life, in general scored lower on IQ scores. So we're basically, we're, we're giving our children mercury, and their IQs are be, becoming lower, and we're dumbing down America. Right. So if a child isn't affected with the diagnostic label of autism, they ha may have uh, one of other disorders. College entrance exams have uh, requirements have had to be lowered. The SAT has changed. The military is now looking for a few good women, maybe because there aren't a few good men left anymore. Brian, the CDC's papers indicate that there's no evidence of harm from Marisol containing vaccines. Is that the case? So why would there be a difference between your results and theirs? Well, the CDC does a lot of things in order to in, in order to dilute out the, the effect of the relationship. Now, when when you design a good epidemiology study, you want to have a maximum variability of exposure in both your cases and your controls. You want to make sure that those individuals received, you know, that you 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 basically cover the entire range of exposures. Um, including children that were not exposed to thimerosal at all, all the way up to the children that got maximum levels of thimerosal in, in both prenatal and postnatal exposure. So you want to make sure that you have a good cross-section. Once you narrow that, and what the CDC does is they, they use a method called stratification, and they only compare... Um, males against males, they won't compare males against females, which in some respects is fine, but, but more insidiously, they will only compare those individuals that were born within the same year and that were in the same HMO. Okay, and what that does is it means that, you know, these HMIOs will buy their vaccines from the CDC in bulk. Okay, the CDC itself buys about $4 billion worth of vaccines per year, and then the HMOs in turn purchase those from the CDC. And they buy them in bulk. So within the HMO, essentially all of the, uh, all of the individuals, all the boys and girls that are receiving their infant vaccines are getting the same exposure of thimerosal. And you can't do a study like that. Okay, let's imagine that I was going to do a study, and this, this is kind of a landmark study on, on this phenomenon, statistical error called overmatching. Let's, let's say that I, I want to look at the effect of cancer in uh, folks that were exposed to uh, uh, ionizing radiation in a nuclear power plant. Okay, well, if I pick my cases and my controls, those that were unaffected that didn't get cancer from the same nuclear power plant, and they all got the same dose of nuclear radiation, then that would be a null study. I mean, I couldn't do it. My control group 
it has to have, I have to have individuals that were never exposed to ionizing radiation in, in order to do that cancer study. And at the same, in the same respect, the CDC is not doing that. They're not looking at individuals that were never exposed to thimerosal. They're not looking at an accurate range of thimerosal concentrations. And so they're getting these statistically dubious results, and they're coming back and they're saying there's no effect. There is no, absolutely no relationship between thimerosal containing vaccines and, and neurological issues, including autism, including speech and language delay. But they are basically, they're using these dubious statistical methods. They cut out all variability. Uh, the uh, folks have, uh, uh, Robert Hitlin and, and, and Kathy DeSoto out of University of Northern Iowa, Iowa have done a great review on this, and, and consistently they will use these dubious techniques and in some cases outright just cherry pick and hide data. You know, they pick the points that they want to report and they hide the points that they don't want to report. And so we have this huge mess. Very astute analysis, Dr. Hooker. Well, in the time remaining, is thimerosal the only problem regarding vaccines and autism? Have you looked at the relationship between any other particular vaccine and autism? Yeah, I think that, you know, to, to say that Tamarisol, uh, is, is the only problem with the current vaccination schedule is, 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 um, is really, really an understatement. The vaccine schedule has not been studied, okay? Colleen Boyle admitted it in the 2002, uh, November 2002 oversight and government reform hearing on autism. She admitted that the, the CDC has never looked at vaccinated versus unvaccinated cohorts that they just flat out had not done that. Now, um, I was able to get some background information on the timing of the MMR vaccine. And uh, this was, uh, uh, the CDC came out with a study by uh, DeStefano in 2004, and they said, hey, you know, you can receive the MMR vaccine at any point in time, you know, if you receive it early, if you receive it on time, if you receive it late, there's absolutely no relationship between the timing of the MMR vaccine and autism. Okay, and so what I did is I, I went and I, and I looked at the raw data. Uh, I reanalyzed the statistics. I used essentially the same methods that the CDC did, but I used a larger cohort set. I had more individuals in my particular cohort than they did. They excluded individuals uh, merely because if an individual could not uh, produce a birth certificate, then they were excluded from the study. So I decided to include everybody, regardless of whether they had a birth certificate or not. I, I saw that there was no relationship between MMR status and whether an individual could produce a birth certificate. So I included what's called the whole, the entire cohort. And I saw a strong relationship between MMR timing and autism in boys. And I, um, I, I went down a little bit further, and I actually looked at African-American males. And what I found was the entirety of the MMR effect was within African-American males. So if you look at uh, African-American males that received their MMR vaccine after three years of life, 
versus those that receive their MMR vaccine on time or, you know, essentially before three years of life, those that receive their MMR vaccine on time were 3.5 times, not percent, but times more likely to receive an autism diagnosis than those individuals that delayed the MMR vaccine. And that, that effect was exclusively in African-American boys. Well, this is fascinating information, Dr. Hooker, and listeners can talk to you more about this at the Autism One 2014 conference in May. Um, Please visit www.autismone.org. Thank you very much, Dr. Hooker, for your steadfast, excellent, and intelligent work for children and families everywhere. Thank you, Terry. I'm really, I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing you and Ed at the conference and everybody. And I, I recommend, if you're on the fence, please come to Autism One. And we would also like to give our thanks to Congressman Bill Posey and his staff for Congressman Bill Posey being on the show today. And we thank this program's sponsor, Scientific Learning's Brain Pro Autism. Please visit them at www.brainprolearning.com and find out about their fast-forward technology that is helping children. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.